0: From KAIT 8 TV, good neighbors you can turn to for news, weather, and sports. Tony Brooks, Diana Davis, Terry Wood, and Dick Clay. This is KAIT 8 News.
1: Good evening. I'm Diane Davis.
0: And I'm Tony Brooks. In a statement given to the police and obtained by a Memphis newspaper, 17 year old Jesse Miss Kelly allegedly confesses to watching two other suspects choke, rape, and sexually mutilate three West Memphis second graders. Jenna Newton
1: reports. According to the published report, Miss Kelly told police he watched 18 year old Damien Eccles and 16 year old Jason Baldwin brutalize the children with a club and a knife. The report says. As Miss Kelly told police, Eccles and Baldwin raped one of the boys and sexually mutilated another as part of a cult ritual. Miss Kelly is quoted as saying he did not take part in the rape and mutilation, but that he helped subdue one victim who tried to escape. At a press conference, Inspector Gary Gitchell said the case against the accused teens is very strong.
2: Eleven. <laughs>
1: It appears satanic worship may have played a role in the murders. Since the very beginning of the investigation, people all around West Memphis have come forward with stories of satanic cults. Rev. Tommy Stacy's church is down the street from where the bodies were found. One year ago, Damian Eccles told the church's youth minister he had a pact with the devil and he was going to hell.
0: to our January Patreon episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. We hope you all had an awesome Christmas and New Year's. As always, thank you so much for your support. It means so much to us and we really hope that you do enjoy this bonus episode as our way of saying thank you. This month we're discussing one of Bill's favourite cases and that is the case of the West Memphis Three. This is a fairly well-known and well-covered case, and I'm sure we don't really have anything unique to add, but it has been requested multiple times, so we thought we'd give it a go. Before we start this episode, I just want to point out as well that there is a distinction between saying the three men accused of this murder are innocent and saying that based on the available evidence, these men should never have been convicted.
2: And with that, I'm going to hand you over to Bill. Thanks, Harry. And as you said, I've had a bit of an interest in this case for some years now, just like many people, I watched the documentaries when they came out um, years ago, And, and being a teenager at the time, I just decided to sort of look into it a little bit further, and I've always found it interesting and obviously a bit of a mystery, so... Um, Yeah, so I'm happy we're covering this case. I'm glad some people requested it. But like Harry said, I don't know that we're going to bring anything sort of new to the case. Obviously, there's so much out there. Yeah, so this is one of those cases that most people have heard about and it's been widely publicised and has stayed that way since the crime took place back in 1993. The reason for this is that the three men who were initially convicted for the crime that we are talking about today are believed to have been falsely accused and convicted. Many celebrities have spoken out in favour of the three convicted men, including Johnny Depp, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, and also one of the Dixie Chicks, I've forgotten. Natalie Maines. Okay. This is an extremely controversial case, and there are still many people who think the West Memphis Three are guilty, and obviously many who think they are innocent. So we'll discuss all of that today. Today's case took place in West Memphis, Arkansas, which is in the
0: heart of the Bible Belt in the deep south in America. For those that don't know, the Bible Belt is an informal name for an area of the United States that is socially conservative and is made up of people who attend the Christian church in higher numbers than the national average. So as you can imagine, the states in the Bible Belt are associated with having a moral compass which is in line with and determined by the teachings of the Bible. This is important in this case because part of the reason the three were targeted and accused was because of their Gothic-style appearance, which many people in their area misinterpreted as Satan worshipping. Another thing to note about the community where this case happened is that it's not a well-off area economically. It has been described as a white trash trailer park area by some, obviously not us, that's just sort of taken from research. It's an area
2: where families often struggle to stay together. On the 5th of May 1993, three young boys, Christopher Mark Byers, James Michael Moore and Stephen Edward Branch were playing around their neighbourhood, which was generally considered a safe community. The three boys were best friends and had met through Cub Scouts and school. One of the sad things about this case is that who these three young boys were has been completely overshadowed by the controversy that followed. The three boys went to play in an area known as the Robin Hood Hills, which appears to be a small wooded area near their neighbourhood. The boys were last seen at 6.30pm by Steve's stepfather, Terry Hobbs. At approximately 7pm, when the boys didn't come home from playing, their
0: parents began to get worried about their welfare. They began searching the area for any sign of the missing boys but turned up nothing. Obviously, as the darkness set in, they were extremely concerned, as any parent would be when you don't know your child's whereabouts. And obviously, back in the early 90s, it was more common for kids to be out and about exploring the neighbourhood but as I understand it, most kids would probably still be in by dark. At some stage, Christopher Byers' stepfather, John Mark Byers, called the police and they joined in a search of the area for the three boys. The official search didn't start till approximately 8am the next morning and this search was led by the Crittenden
2: County Search and Rescue Team. So on May 6th, the day following the disappearance, at approximately 1.45pm, one of the searchers, Steve Jones, was searching in the wooded area known as Robin Hood Hills when he noticed a black running shoe in a creek that looked like it could belong to a young boy. He stepped into the creek and unfortunately discovered the bodies of the three young boys. The boys were naked and had been hogtied with their own shoelaces. And the way that they were hogtied has been mentioned as strange in many sources. They were hogtied with the same side wrist to the same side ankle, which isn't the traditional method of hog-tying and reportedly may not have even been enough to prevent escape had they have tried been trying to escape. Their clothing was found in the creek and was mostly turned inside out. However, two of the boys' underwear was not found at the scene. I do actually think as well,
0: like, the fact that the underwear was missing could mean that one day, if it is found, it could possibly lead to... Um, the potential offender, which, yeah, you know how often killers will take like a sort of memento from the crime scene? Yeah. yeah. I
2: think there was a sock missing as well. Oh, okay. That could, could be wrong. But like what you were saying, um, chances are, though, of it actually still being around is so yeah. slim. But having said that, there's not much else to go on. No. It seems like they're not going to look much further. So, yeah, you're right, that could be a break if hopefully one day they are found. The injuries to the boys' bodies were pretty horrific, to say the least, and
0: we're not going to be discussing those at length. If you are interested in that information, um, a simple Google search will provide you with that, or you could watch the Paradise Lost documentary series on the case, which is I'm pretty sure available on YouTube pretty freely. According to forensic pathologist Frank J. Peretti, the autopsies of the boys revealed that Christopher Byers passed away from multiple injuries. Whereas Stephen Branch and Michael Moore died of multiple injuries with drowning. It was thought that the boys were both attacked and killed in the area where their bodies lay, as there was no drag marks or anything to indicate that they had been moved to the area where they were found from another area. And this was confirmed by luminal testing of the area, apparently, although there are some people who state that there was not enough blood found in the area to conclude this fact. This is one of those cases where each piece of information is hotly debated and it's actually really hard to draw definitive conclusions about even the smallest sort of less important pieces of information. Mm. So it's just, it's quite yeah. devastating that even these tiny pieces of information are just, it's just really nothing to go on Yeah, at the end of the day. That's it. Um, Police definitely immediately suspected that there was more than one killer involved, as each boy was tied slightly differently, suggesting that each knot may have been tied by a different perpetrator. It would also have been difficult, although maybe not impossible, for one killer to control all three of the young
2: boys. And I've also heard some people saying, in regard to the knots being slightly different, that if someone was in control of the boys, they may have had the boys tie the knots on each other on each as well. Oh, isn't so that horrible? It's horrible, but it's just a theory that's out yeah. there and it's probably worth mentioning. Straight away, the crimes were believed to have satanic overtones. And this could be sort of due to the satanic panic that kind of mm. went around
0: in the 80s and early 90s. People were, like, terrified of satanists and yeah. there was still a lot of, like, religious... was religion was still a very sort of hotly debated
2: topic and and, particularly in that town where it was the bible belt of the states so even more so the satanic panic would have been in place i think quite a lot of
0: murders were probably wrongly attributed to being satanic at that time Mm.
2: we do just want to make it clear that there was no solid evidence that the crimes had anything to do with satanism or cults or anything of that nature There were a few suspects early on in the investigation. As soon as the public learnt that there was the possible satanic involvement, many people started coming forward to suggest names of people they knew that they thought might be involved. West Memphis Police Departments briefly had suspicions of two teens from West Memphis named Chris Morgan and Brian Holland. These two boys were interrogated between the 15th and 17th of May in 1993 in California where they had travelled to just days after the murders. Both teens denied their involvement in the crime, but both also failed polygraphs. In what seems to become a pattern in the case, the boys were held in custody and questioned for an extreme amount of time to the point where they felt they wouldn't be able to leave unless they confessed. So to this day, and when I was doing research, and I'm sure you came across it too, their names popped up continuously on the um, online forums. Yes, so, potential alternative suspects. Yeah. so yeah. I feel like so they almost had just as much information on those boys as they did on the boys that ended up getting convicted so, it was, so it's almost like it could be anyone yeah that they sort of had the right situation with yeah had they have maybe had someone confessing like they did yeah. with the three west memphis boys the west memphis three it could have been a very different scenario yeah well the same, same scenario, scenario with different people with different people yeah exactly another suspect that is spoken
0: about is known as mr bojangles The night of the murders of the little boys at a nearby fast food restaurant called Bojangles, an African-American male who appeared to be dazed and covered in blood and mud stumbled in. Reportedly, he made his way to the ladies room where he stayed for approximately half an hour to 45 minutes as the evening shift workers started cleaning up for the night. The manager of the restaurant, who was a young man named Marty King, recalled that the man was wearing a blue jogging suit and had a cast on one arm. He had thick mud on his shoes and his pants were soaked up to his knees. King got more and more concerned as time went on and eventually he popped his head around the door to see what was going on. He saw that the floor was covered in feces and there was also blood on the walls. The man was sort of propping himself up, just sort of leaning down, propping himself up. This man is now known as Mr. Bojangles and he arrived at the restaurant sometime between 8pm and 9.30pm. The restaurant was approximately one mile or 1.6 kilometres from where the boys were found, which is obviously well within walking distance. Police were called and Officer Regina Meek responded. She spoke to a staff member through the drive-through window and quickly conducted a search and then left. Samples were not taken until the following day but uh, were never sent to the lab and were eventually lost. So that's pretty shoddy police yeah. work. Like I can't believe that if someone sort of came in in that state and kind of left the bathroom around in that, that state. Time. Around, I mean, I don't think they knew really the the police such I don't think had been really established okay. at that point. But even still, that's pretty extreme to have that happen in a restaurant and to not kind of have the police at least come in and kind of Is it though?
2: Is that that weird? I think it is. I feel like if they knew about the boys and all that, then it would be weird. But if it was not at that point, like it could just be a guy who's down on his luck and just... I feel Mm. like they would have stuff like that all the time. Yeah. That would be very common. As a a police officer, that's probably the main things you're dealing with, like drunk and disorderly, like people on drugs. Like, not that I'm saying that guy was. I'm just saying those are the sort of people that police are day-to-day. Yeah. Whereas if you put that in conjunction with the crime that just happened, I don't know how far into that investigation. Yeah, that's a good point. See, I don't recall whether Mm. they... Obviously, the parents had started looking
0: for the police. Yeah, that's also But whether or not the police all knew about it. Like, did Regina even if the other police knew, did Regina Meeks know yeah. that there was a search for three missing boys? Exactly.
2: Maybe not. Yeah. I kind of feel like that's not that weird okay. that it wasn't looked into. That's my opinion. The next set of suspects are the most well-known and they are known as the West Memphis Three. 18 year old Damien Eccles quickly became a suspect in the eyes of the investigation because he had some characteristics that were mistaken with being satanic. Damien wore all black clothing, he wrote dark poetry, listened to Metallica and other heavy metal bands, and he had long black hair. Can I just say that is actually a description of me when I was yeah, a teenager. Yeah, what you looked like. <laughs> that's like, I actually do. had all black
0: clothing, wrote dark poetry, listened to Metallica yeah. and other heavy metal bands and had long black hair. They all actually
2: fit me yeah, when they I was do. a teenager. They really do. And they have blonde hair. <laughs> yeah, that's my natural hair colour. That's true. Um, yeah, definitely. And like you said, it fits you, but it also fits, fits so many teenagers things. especially. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He also had a very strong history of psychiatric issues, um, which is something that isn't always mentioned in the case um, when it's discussed, so we'll go into that um, a little bit later, so just give you a little bit more insight into that. Damien was interviewed on the 7th of May by Steve Jones, the juvenile officer who discovered the bodies of the three boys. Damien was questioned on a further two occasions, and he told the investigators that he had never heard of the three boys who lost their lives. The alibi that he gave was that he was at home talking on the phone to a number of his girlfriends, and this alibi wasn't able to be completely substantiated, and some of the girls denied talking to him that night. Investigators also started to focus their attention on one of Damien Eccles' friends, and that was Jason Baldwin, who was only 16 at the time. Along with Damien, he had a previous record with the police, and that was just for shoplifting and vandalism. Damien Eccles
0: was given a polygraph test on the 7th of May, 1993, and the examiner suggested that his chart indicated that he was being deceptive. On his May 9th interview... Damien mentioned to the detective that one of the victims had wounds to his genital area, which was consistent with the crime scene. At the time, police considered it to be incriminating that Damien knew this information. But I actually um, think in my research that it seems that that information was actually publicly known Mm. through the newspapers. So he could well have either heard that through the grapevine because it was a small town or have read that in the newspapers. It wasn't necessarily because he was at the crime scene. On June 3rd, the police interrogated Jesse Miskelley Jr., who was reportedly an acquaintance of Damien and Jason, but not a close friend. Jesse had a very low IQ of around 72, which puts him in the category of borderline intellectual functioning, which is actually quite a, like,
2: decent sort of learning
0: difficulties.
2: They also, I've seen that number range a little as well, so I'm not sure what the exact number is, but I'm pretty sure it's kind of always borderline, Mm. like. I know people who are sort of more in line with, the West Memphis Three are actually guilty, there's some higher numbers going around. So I don't know where they got them from, but I've seen, like, numbers that aren't around that 70 mark. They're more in the 80s and early 90s. When it comes to this case, nothing's, like, set in stone, really, is it? Yeah, well, that's what it seemed like. So
0: I'm not sure what the number actually is. Jesse was questioned for 12 hours straight, which is a very long time for anyone, let alone someone who potentially had an intellectual disability. And the vast majority of the interview wasn't recorded. Miss Calib reportedly believed that unless he confessed to the murders and implicated his acquaintances, that he wouldn't actually be allowed to leave the interrogation room, which obviously rings a bell with how those other two boys felt Mm. um, when coming up against the same police officers. Eventually, he did give in and confess but quickly recanted this confession afterwards and stated that he felt that he was coerced and intimidated into confessing. In Jesse's confession, he implicated himself, stating that at one point, one of the boys tried to run away and that he chased the boy and stopped him. He implicated Jason and Damien in the actual murder and sexual mutilation of all three boys.
2: Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. was informed of his Miranda rights prior to his interrogation, but he later stated that he didn't fully understand what they were. However, in 1996, the Supreme Court in Arkansas ruled that the confession made by Miss Kelly was voluntary and would stand up. Not long after Miss Kelly confessed to police, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin were arrested for the murders of Stephen Branch, Michael Moore and Christopher Byers. Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. was tried separately to Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin, and they were actually tried together, which I think there could have also been a different result had they not have been tried together, because I don't know that they really had anything on Jason. But that's mm. just, once again, that's just my opinion, but they were tried together. Jesse's defence during his trial focused mainly on the fact that he may have falsely confessed to the murders. They had an expert of false confessions and police coercions named Dr. Richard Offshee, testified that Jesse's confession was a classic example of police coercion. Despite this, Jesse Ms. Kelly was sentenced to life in prison plus two 20-year terms on top of that. People commonly state that even if Jesse's confession was true, he never said that he took part in the actual murders, so this sentence is quite harsh, even if going on his confession, it's a harsh sentence. Yeah.
0: We're going to quickly discuss Damien Eccles' history of severe mental illness, as this is one of the key points that's brought up by people who still believe that he played a role in the murders, and it's often said that this is downplayed by people who think that he's innocent. Um, Damien Eccles had an extensive mental illness record, and by extensive, I mean extensive. It was 500 pages long. And I've seen all 500 pages and you can find this yourself at a website called callahan.mysite.com, which is an excellent resource on this case and contains like a heap of official documents. Um, Damien was under no illusions himself about his mental illness and he even nominated himself for disability payments. Um, citing his mental illness history as a reason why he was unable to work. In Damien's record, he describes himself as homicidal, suicidal, manic-depressive, schizophrenic, and sociopathic. There are records of Damien being violent and threatening both students and teachers at his school, as well as an incident where Damien drank the blood of another pupil whose wrist was bleeding. Damien was hospitalised for his mental health concerns multiple times and it's clear that not only did his family worry about him, but mental health professionals were also concerned about his behaviour. Having said this, many people have mental illnesses, even similar to Damien's, especially uh, like the common teenage mental illnesses and don't go on to commit murder. So while Damien's mental health history is important in explaining his character and personality, In itself, it doesn't actually say a lot about his guilt
2: or innocence. The way Damien presented himself as a person also did not help his case. The small religious town didn't seem to be able to get past his tattoos, one of which was the word evil on his knuckles and his taste in heavy metal music, which, as we were saying earlier, both both those, even tattoos is totally normal as well. But in that small town, obviously that doesn't help. I think you have to take that into context because... Mm yeah obviously it's, it was a
0: different time mm. even like the early 90s it was sort of that kind of music was just sort of coming into vogue yeah. a bit and in small towns like that i don't think it was even like I, I don't think it was a very commonly yeah a common thing to see someone in sort of all black sort of in the
2: 90s we're in the 90s but we're like- in the bible belt okay Yeah. I think, I don't know, maybe everything's just different in the Bible. but Yeah, potentially. So as well as this, um, Damien apparently had an attitude and many people would call him cocky. It didn't take long for police to settle comfortably on this strange character and label him as guilty. And as well as that, there was the fact that Damien um, did kind of enjoy, from what I've researched, he sort of seemed to, in a way, enjoy the attention of this a little bit. And apparently at a softball game, one day, he sort of allured to the fact that he he was not guilty, but he was being questioned yeah. about the case. So people, the general public, had the feel that he was guilty, and I don't he think could have he just minded. been sort of showing up Absolutely. to the kids and like that's what he I was think. trying to yeah. kind of put across that mm. persona that he's this dark, yeah. like trying to impress the yeah. girls with this persona. So obviously, yeah. and that's not a, con- there was never a confession. It was just that apparently at that softball game, he was sort of alluring to the fact that he was a person of interest, yeah, and. A teenage, like, he's a teenager. Yeah. Yeah, I don't find it weird that he did that, but at the same time, that's just an, all I'm pointing out is that's another reason why the yeah. public and police were like, well, it's definitely him, because he sort of had that whole demeanour about him, which, yeah, I really don't think is that weird, but obviously in that town with those particular police officers and those people, it just came across as he was, he was the perpetrator, satanic mm, satanic exactly and also that same community obviously there was huge pressure coming from them to have those crimes solved so um, i think the police were under quite a mm, lot of pressure to, to get someone sort three year old boys like yeah it's huge course the pressure would have been massive so three weeks after miss kelly's trial ended that's when damien and jason's trial began The prosecution settled on the theory that the young men had committed a satanic murder. The star witness for the prosecution was a graduate of
0: Columbia Pacific University, which is actually not an accredited university, and he was an expert in the occult. So as you can gather, his qualifications really should not have held up in a court of law, but in a small town whose residents fear anything occult, it seemed to just confirm their assumptions. Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin were found guilty of the murders of Stephen Michael and Christopher on the 19th of March, 1994. Damien Eccles received the death penalty and Jason Baldwin was sentenced to life in prison. A point that is mentioned often is the inconsistencies in the sentences. As we mentioned before, Jesse Miskelley's sentence was extreme, considering the other two supposedly committed the murders. However, Jason received a life sentence, which is lenient in comparison to Jesse's, considering he was actually the one that participated heavily in the murders.
2: But having said that, um, that confession wasn't in a trial so, it's not like that was the reason they were. Yeah. That, J- that good Jason point. was convicted.
0: It didn't take long for the wider public to catch wind of what was going on in West Memphis and begin to
2: criticise the handling of the case by the police. It was widely believed that there were many procedures that should have taken place immediately after the discovery of the crime scene that did not. There was talk of the crime scene being carelessly trampled and that the bodies of the little boys were interfered with before the medical examiner had arrived and that the creek should have been drained quicker. There were many mistakes made, and this is something that is a heavy focus of the supporters of the West Memphis 3’s innocence. There have been other potential suspects that have come to the forefront since the West Memphis Three went to jail, and these suspects are much closer to home for the poor victims. Following the murders, three documentaries were made following the journeys of the families of the victims and the investigations. The documentaries are called Paradise Lost. John
0: Mark Byers was the adoptive stepfather of Christopher Byers and became an early suspect. He is an eccentric figure who appeared to play up for the cameras whenever they were pointed at him. And he is quite a mm. character. Like. He's a character. Very full-on, very loud and, like, flamboyant in front of yeah. the cameras.
2: I think as well you've got to remember, like, in that the one where it was all directed towards him being the guilty guilty guy – he's a grieving like if, if he's not guilty he's a grieving stepfather and and the stuff he was doing was weird like he was like shooting being like this one's for you damien and like shooting yeah. him like down the cans and stuff but i feel like if you were if you thought damien killed your stepson yeah and that's his way of he was coping. definitely an easy target easy for the target. documentary yeah. filmmakers he was an interesting character he
0: was He was interrogated in November 1993 by the West Memphis Police Department after he gave a knife to one of the crew members that were filming the documentary. The police department's suspicion were piqued when Byer's story continued to change. At first, he said he'd never used the knife until the police pointed out that they'd found blood on it. He then changed his story to state that he had used the knife to cut up deer meat, and then police told him that the blood they found on the knife actually matched Christopher Byers it was eventually concluded that it actually couldn't be determined whether the blood was from Christopher or John Mark which i found strange like that they're saying the blood could be from either Christopher or the stepfather because they're not actually blood related
2: that is interesting yeah mm. so i don't really know what was unless going on there. there was mixed samples Yeah, good point. Their blood could have been mixed, I'm not sure how. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was strange, but I thought I'd mention it anyway. Yeah. Byers was also of interest due to some teeth impressions found on Stephen Branch's forehead. Despite Damien, Jesse, and Jason willfully providing their teeth impressions, there was no match. In 1997, John Mark Byers had all of his teeth removed before an impression could be taken of them. He had given mixed reasons why he had to have his teeth removed, first stating that the seizure medication he took caused periodontal disease and then stating that he had to remove them due to other dental problems. This is, again, very suspicious, but there is also the potential that the bite marks found on the boys may have been made by a certain type of turtle that can be found in the creeks at Robin Hood Hills. And obviously his what he said could be true. Yeah. Yeah. Another potential suspect was Terry Hobbs,
0: who was the stepfather of Stephen Branch. A hair found in one of the shoelaces used to bind Michael Moore was tested and could be matched to only 1.5% of the population, which included Terry Hobbs and excluded Damien Jason and Jesse. Terry Hobbs came even more to the forefront in 2007 when he filed a defamation lawsuit against singer of the Dixie Chicks, Natalie Maines, who was a supporter of the West Memphis Three. Because he sued her, her lawyers were actually able to depose Terry Hobbs, which is obviously when they are able to ask him questions under oath. And multiple people also came forward with their suspicions about him, including his ex-wife, Pam Hobbs who is the mother of of the victim, Stephen Branch. As well as Pam, John Mark Byers, the stepfather of Christopher Byers, who we were talking about before, also stated that he believed that Terry Hobbs was involved in the murders. Terry was also reportedly the last one to see the boys. A neighbour of the Hobbs family allegedly saw the boys being called by Terry Hobbs to come inside just hours before they went missing at 6.30pm. In the end of Terry Hobbs' suit against Natalie Maines, he ended up having to pay her legal bills, which were approximately $17,000. Wow. So obviously that didn't go very far for him because she was only stating things that are known to be true. Yeah. So it wasn't actually defamation.
2: In 2007, Damien Eccles' defence lawyers sought a retrial in his case and cited that the DNA evidence that linked Terry Hobbs to the crime scene and excluded him. They also cited the statements from Pam Hobbs and thought this was enough to cast reasonable doubt on Eccles' guilt. In 2010, this request was denied on the grounds that the DNA found was inconclusive. In 2008, it came to light that the jury foreman of Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin's trial had been discussing inadmissible evidence with an attorney in the case prior to deliberations. It was thought that following this, he shared this inadmissible evidence which included Jessie Miss Kelly's confessions. Um, I'm not sure that we mentioned before or not, that Jesse Miss Kelly's confessions were not used in the Damien Eccles and um, Jason Baldwin trial. Um, so they were not used at all during that. So obviously... Which you know, makes it even harder to believe that they were found guilty. of exactly. What did they even use against them? Especially like Damien, you know, they can sort of say whatever they think about the satanic panic stuff. But if you see Jason, he doesn't really fall under that no. category. And I obviously don't think satanic... I don't think because you wear a black T-shirt you should be convicted. But I can see... Where they were going, but Jason Baldwin, I just don't see it at all. That's just me. So the foreman was possibly sharing that information, and that um, recommended that they should find the two men guilty. Which obviously so he was basically tampering with the rest yeah, of the jury. It's yeah, it's really not allowed no. when you're on the jury.
0: In 2011, after many weeks of negotiations, it was decided that as part of a plea deal, Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Jason Baldwin would be released from prison using an Alford plea. The Alfred plea is a complicated and rarely used plea which allows the defendant to plead guilty without actually admitting guilt. Under this deal the prior convictions of the men were vacated. They were released after serving 18 years and 78 days each. Weren't they released with time served? Like yeah, name. so that is, that's them released oh. with those, mm. their time served was the 18 years and 78 yeah. days.
2: And I know that I've watched a few um, interviews as well with Damien and Jason and Jesse. and from what I can gather, they are still sort of thinking, well, in the court, in the law's eyes, it's all done and dusted, but they're not going fi- to like, if they are, if those three are innocent, which I personally believe they are, they're not going to find the real killer. Like, the investigation's sort of over, so... I mean, what can they really do now unless something huge comes mm. to light, someone confesses,
0: someone's been holding on to information that that hasn't been said before, yeah. then it's really there's, very sadly done because the the poor three little yeah, boys. Yeah, the three boys, it's not
2: really – there's so little information out there about them. It's just not about them. Like yeah, in the documentaries. No. I We scoured for information yeah. about the little boys because we don't really like to do – uh,
0: like any case where we can't talk about the victim and make the victim the focus, but with this case, it was just mm. there really wasn't a lot out there apart from the fact that they're Cub Scouts, they were eight years old, they sound like just your normal typical yeah. cool little
2: eight-year-old boys. But even those documentaries, in a way, they, in my opinion, almost degraded the boys a little bit because they showed the crime scene so mm. vividly, and I was just yeah, that's actually a good warning for anyone who's I, going to watch The Paradise mm. Lost
0: within the first couple of minutes of that documentary you do actually see the boys bodies it's Um, quite it's very confronting it it was quite disturbing i'm like i'm fairly comfortable with seeing things like things like that but it was quite even confronting for me because there's no warning that it's going to happen
2: well i know um real real crime profile awesome podcast did a um they covered this, they covered it all from the victim's perspective. Like it wasn't even about it. They barely even mentioned the West Memphis three. Um, and yeah, Jim Clemeni was really disgusted by the crime scene being in it. Um, and I just sort of, I just agreed with him. Like it's kind of, it's re victimizing them in a way like, and there's perpetrators out there who would enjoy seeing that scene. And it just seems like it was too much. Um, but yeah, so it's the, at the end of the day, um, the horrible thing is that the, the there's little, no justice. Yeah, there's no justice for the three little boys that were murdered. And there's no one really fighting for that justice. Like there were so many
0: people fighting for the justice of the West Memphis three. Who's fighting for the justice of the little boys? I think
2: like, there is some things, some wheels in motion. Like I, I hope know so. Damien Eccles even. Is he? Yeah.
0: I hope I would hope so. I mm. mean, obviously it's not really his responsibility. No. If he was innocent, he just got swept up into it as well. Yeah. But.
2: but he seems like at the kind he seems like in, I don't know him obviously at all but from the interviews I've seen he seems like a good guy like yeah. I think he he would want justice for those boys like he's yeah he's yeah I think he's doing a couple of things I've, that I've sort of seen but yeah hopefully more happens as well
0: so at the end of the day I guess as we've sort of said we really need to remember that three little boys with their whole lives ahead of them were brutally murdered this fact seems to have become the least spoken about in the entire case Regardless of anything else, Stephen Branch, Michael Moore and Christopher Byers deserve justice for their lives that were ended far, far too soon. Our thoughts go out to their loved ones and we encourage you to take a moment to spare a thought for those three little boys who were the true victims of the West Memphis murders. Thank you again, guys, for listening and for supporting us and please stay safe.